Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, are you okay? You look so bedraggled. Oh, you cycled here in the rain this morning. Yes, my lunch fell out of my rucksack. I left my rucksack open. And you'd packed yourself some tomatoes and a sandwich, but the sandwich survived. You, you managed to retrieve it. So yes. you were jettisoning items yeah. as you cycled along. Yeah. Um, I think I might have lost a banana on the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and your tomatoes got squashed? The tomatoes were right off, yeah. Oh, I'm They're so sorry. cherry tomatoes, but it's just one of those things. So were you on all fours retrieving? No, no okay. it wasn't too bad. Okay. And um, what sort of lunchbox do you have out of interest? It's just like what you've got lying around the house, really. It's not... Oh, so it's not got uh, your favourite TV programme on it or anything no. like that? No. I used to have one of those when I went to school in America, I think. I don't know what was my... The thing is, I don't know what was on it when I was seven. A Dallas lunchbox? Mm, I don't think so. I have good news. Yeah. Steven Spielberg has been on the phone and he wants to adapt <laughs> your anecdote from last week's podcast uh, about living two doors down from a shop that sold Twiglets into a motion picture. I mean, that is amazing. Who's going to play me? I mean, who do you think People you should play People are lining you? up. This could be part of your negotiation. Ray you Romano. Get... <laughs> yeah, of course. John Cusack. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure we should sign immediately with Spielberg just in case Peter Jackson wants to come in and turn it into a trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> are you taking the mickey here? Well... I tweeted the video of that anecdote yeah. and it went, I wouldn't say viral, but I think yeah. somebody somebody on the podcast used yeah. the expression fungal. Because and what was... Well, well, I'll just remind you of it because you, you seem to have forgotten. Yeah. This is what a, a true Peter Ustinov-like character you are. These anecdotes just fall out of you. <laughs> um, so, so you've forgotten what you even said. So so here, here it is again. I had a twiglet recently for the first time in a very long time. How did it go for you? I mean... <laughs> 
Honestly, I was reminded how much I like Twiglets. I'm so pleased. Did I tell you that when I was growing up in London, there was an off-licence literally two doors down from me? Did I tell you this? No. Yes. That's not the end of the story, is it? <laughs> no, I used to nip out and buy a, buy a packet of Twiglets in the evening. It's a shame Parkinson's isn't still on the air, otherwise you could go on that show and tell that story. <laughs> so that was a nice moment from last week's podcast, and, and I, and I yeah. tweeted it, and it got yeah. 139,000 views on Twitter and Bloody about 50,000 on TikTok. And um, there are yeah. different different questions. So, so one question is, what type of shop was it again? <laughs> what, what, what was the shop? An off-licence. A what, sorry? An off-licence. A lot of people commented on how strange you put the emphasis on licence. Instead of saying off-licence, you say off-licence. <laughs> like that is the intriguing part. Off-licence? Yeah. An off-licence? No, an off-licence, not an off-licence. I live two doors down from an off-licence. An off-licence? Hmm. Is that what I... <laughs> yes. So I don't know how what the difference is. It's the, the stress on the off rather than on licence most people go with. An off-licence? Yeah, there you go. Are you hearing the difference? An off-licence. <laughs> there's, there's kind of like a, a promise of something in the way you say it. Well, Come into the off license. I think that was the uh, the, the main. Yeah, that was the main takeout from it. However, we, we had this fungal video, and then you managed to completely eclipse it. You had your own video go properly viral. This has had, I think, like a million views or something. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, so let's let's just uh, for. The minority people who haven't seen it, here it is. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. So here I am on the latest stage of my GB Energy Tour, and I'm near Mansfield at the Lindhurst Wind Farm. Now, yeah. I, th- I think we can yeah. pause it there. You get the yeah. general impression. Now, C- can I just, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get a word in edgeways here. This is a, this is a podcast with two presenters <laughs> rather than one. <laughs> Uh, I think we've heard enough of you with your Twiglet uh, anecdotes. Uh, so I was on, basically, we were on the way to this wind farm because yes. the government's got this ban on onshore wind. There's mm-hmm. a serious point here. And and I was saying, well, if I just do a, a, a sort of, isn't it terrible they've got a ban on onshore wind? It's, it's not going to get much. You know, who's so, who's going to watch it? What can, well, you're thinking, another, what, what can we do yeah. to grab attention? Yeah. And so then I said, hang on, we need a guitar and sing blowing. I need to go and sing blowing in the wind. I don't know what gave me that idea. And then there's a brilliant young Labour Party organiser called uh, Niall. And we rang him, and within an hour, he'd sold three guitars. <laughs> and then the guitars arrived at the wind farm, and the people who ran the wind farm were like, oh, we think there might be a bit of a problem here because three guitars have arrived at the wind farm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was like, no, no, that is actually what, you know, is intended. Now, for avoidance of doubt... Um... And I went for the... Can I just say there were a choice of three guitars, both two of which were sort of serious guitars, and one was which was like a more kids sort of guitar. And I went for the blue kids guitar because mm. for, for avoidance of doubt and i don't think there will be I much can't doubt, play you can't guitar. play the guitar uh, i think, think that is yeah. self-evident yeah and if you look at the video it's got the look of i don't know if you've ever seen somebody whose car's broken down and they're milling around on the hard shoulder yeah. that's that's the kind of uh, aesthetic you've you've gone <laughs> that's for. that's what we went for yeah yeah well, what, why does it look like that you just sort of seem quite randomly on a patch of grass and then you have to dispose of the guitar you don't throw it like a rock star you should i've thrown the guitar well then i wouldn't want to throw someone's guitar i know but it would have been a bit more rock and roll wouldn't it do you think but jimmy hendrix smashing up your guitar mm. not on brand also i had to do more than one take so you know. uh, no hang on hang on you had to do more than one take <laughs> hang on so so this is the result of 
How many rehearsals? Not because of the guitar playing, but because I fluffed a line about wind, how many wind turbines, you know what I mean? It's that, more, more that sort of thing. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Have you ever heard of something called auto-tune? No. A lot of vocalists use it on their uh, performances these days. It just, just corrects any, what you might call, pitchiness. Not that I'm saying there was, there was any in that fine performance. What would correct my voice? Let's not make it specifically about you, but say there was somebody who sang who, out of tune. Who sang out of tune? Yeah. Let's just hypothesise yeah. that that person. I'm might not exist. sensitive about this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. then then it, it would uh, correct that. Are you serious? Yes. Could you do that on my video and then see what it all sounds like? Well, I was tempted to ask listeners to remix it, but thinking about how well it went when we asked for new theme music, <laughs> I think I'm going to resist that urge. Anyway, I had fun. Okay, I'm getting the look. Shall we talk about what we're talking about? This week, Jeff, we're, we're thrilled to be talking to award-winning journalist, author, broadcaster, and now professor of sociology, Gary Young. Gary is a, well, Rachel says he's a veteran reporter and columnist. I don't think of him as a veteran because he's basically exactly, almost exactly my age. He's so a silverback. So that means I'm a veteran. Uh, he worked at The Guardian for 25 years. He became the paper's US correspondent in 2003, lived in America for 12 years before moving back to London. Uh, he's covered some of the most significant events in our recent history, from witnessing the destruction in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, to seeing Obama win a decisive victory in 2008. He's interviewed figures including... Desmond Tutu, Maya Angelou, and Stormzy. And his latest book is a collection of his writing. It's called Dispatches from the Diaspora, From Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, do you know Succession is coming back at the end of this month? Mm. It's my favourite TV show. You did an award-winning podcast as well. Well, it it, it is my favourite TV show of the moment, and and you are quite right, because in the run-up to it, Sarah, my wife and I, have decided to re-watch previous series... And put out some rewatch podcasts. So we've just released a chat about series one. Series four is, is what's coming, yeah? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and are you going to do a weekly podcast? Yeah, we're going to do episode by episode like we did with series Fantastic. three. And um, I, I know some people, it's it's too hard to watch these awful people. I think maybe you've, phone, you started yeah. to fall into that I, I sort of fell off, the, fell off the bus and sometime in series three. Whereas, whereas I just think... D- Despite the the world they're in and how despicable they are in these ways, there is no show like it for getting into the psychology of people. And we have such fun just talking about their personalities and their motives. And it's called Firecrotch and Normcore. If succession is your thing, then hope you enjoy it. What's your reason to be cheerful? Mine is also uh, of the uh, uh, television-related thing. We started watching with my kids something called The Piano, which is presented by Claudia Winkleman. I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things. Honestly, brilliant. Um, And full disclosure, it's um, created by a friend of mine called Richard McCarrow, who I've known for a very long time. It's basically, they set up a piano in different train stations. They invite amateur pianists to come and play. Um, These two very famous, uh, well, famous singer-songwriter Mika and Lang Lang, the very famous concert pianist, are sort of hidden, kind of off off screen, or off camera rather. Um, and these people come and play, and then at the end, it's a reveal. But it's just it's really quite moving. Some of the people who've been playing, old, young, it's a bit like the Susan Boyle moment. Do you know what I mean? It's like when she came on to Britain's Got Talent, and all your assumptions fall away, and also just incredible playing. Mm. Just the diversity of what the piano can produce, and the diversity of different 
people and you know and are you secretly hoping that they do a spin-off series where they leave guitars in public places and you'll be caught on camera well i don't know i don't think i should reveal too much at this stage <laughs> Jeff. you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd well here to talk about his new book dispatches from the diaspora from nelson mandela to black lives matter we're thrilled to be joined by Gary Young. Hello. How are you doing? I'm, in I'm person. Well, this is a face that I've seen for years in your byline photo. Uh, and it's, it's much better looking in person, <laughs> I think. Let me, let me ask you, when you're a journalist, how often are you recognised by that byline photo? You know what? A surprising amount. Although, having spent most of my career trying to tease out the nuances of race and class and nation and identity and all that... I am mostly recognised for going shouty crackers at a Nazi in a car park, which was this interview that I did with Richard Spencer. But it's a powerful moment, but how does that feel, having a body of work like yours spanning decades and, and that's the thing? You know, you roll with it. You know? <laughs> and and the, tr- the truth is, lots of people toil away at journalism and they're not recognised by anyone ever. So, you know, I don't regret that. Interaction. When did it happen? The re- it was in 2017. I was doing a documentary for Channel 4 called Angry White and American. And I was anthropologising white people in a way that people often do about black people, but the cameras never reverse. And I thought, Trump is an expression of white America. So let's just understand what's going on there. So we, we looked at things like opioid addiction, deindustrialization, faulty memories about how the country got to where it was. And I thought that it would be remiss not to speak to at least one organised sort of racist. And he was the one that I could justify because, and there's a story here that goes back to when I first met you, because he had a base that was connected to Steve Bannon through the alt-right and therefore connected to Donald Trump. And so he represented something. But I didn't realise he was just going to be as kind of offensive and crazy as he was. I I was used to my racist coming with a bit more finesse and he just didn't have that. But Ed and I met when I was an intern and Ed was a researcher on this weekly magazine programme for Channel 4 called The World This Week. We were working for Yorkshire Telly. How old would you have been at the time? 24? Yeah, we were very young. And I was asked, I was employed because I had languages, I studied languages, and I was asked to call the Front National, and this was on my last week of my probation, to call the Front National and invite Jean-Marie Le Pen onto the show. And I kind of took a walk around the block and I just thought, I'm just not doing this. And this is the, this is my first job in journalism, if I start doing things like that, then... So I went back in. That takes a lot of backbone at, th- at that age and in that position where you've, you, you're you thinking, OK, I've got a career ahead of me. You'd think that, but uh, I, it felt at the time like the stakes were like, they weren't paying me enough. Right. Like, I don't know what it would cost for me to sell out, but it'd be a lot more than what they were paying me at the time. And I had a point, I thought. So I went back in and I said to the guy who was directing it, that. I just don't think that this is a responsible thing to do. He's polling at 6 or 7%. I think it's to titillate people. I completely understand the line of command, so I know that I'm being insubordinate here, but I don't... What, I'm not what happened? Well, the stakes were low for him too, right? Because I was an intern. He, he was fine about it, actually. He thought I was wrong, and there was something about freedom of speech, and then I said, yeah, but we don't owe Jean-Marie Le Pen a platform. 
And I thought about that when I went to interview Richard Spencer in terms of like, why are you interviewing this guy? Why? And my rationale is that you couldn't not interview Marine Le Pen now. She's not polling 7%. Yeah. The politics are such yeah. that to interview her is to hold her to account. These people have to be held to account. And what you don't want to do is contribute to their rise. Yeah. But when they reach a certain point, and that's a judgment call, then you have to engage. And I felt that his, him being one person removed from Trump justified an engagement. Tell us, Gary, about your background and upbringing, which led you to the career in journalism you had start at the beginning. My parents were from Barbados. They moved, my mum moved to England in 62. I think she got in just under the wire from the first Immigration Act. Interestingly, would have been brought in to kind of work in what was Enoch Powell's reformed National Health Service. And they settled eventually in Stevenage. I was the third of three boys. My dad left when I was one. And then I grew up in Stevenage, which is a, a new town. Some interesting and weird things about Stevenage. Most importantly to me, and I can't yet explain this, but the most famous people to come out of Stevenage are all black, as far as I'm aware. Uh-huh. Lewis, Lewis Hamilton. Who you've interviewed. Who I've interviewed. Um, Ashley Young. How interesting. Um, Roland Butcher, who was first black player to yeah. play cricket for England. Giles Torreira, who um, won the Olivier Award in, in, from Amazing. Hamilton. Have you got any theories about that? I have one. I don't know whether it stands up. The only theory I have is that Stevenage was a new town and it was built by the Attlee government, complete creature of the social democratic ideal. And so when I was growing up there, you couldn't tell anything about anyone from where they lived or what school they went to, although they didn't see themselves like this. There was a lot of racism in the town, but everybody was an immigrant, more or less. I think I had one friend whose mum went to school in Stevenage, but otherwise everybody's parents came from somewhere else. So they were all blow-ins, and there hadn't been enough time for institutionalised racism to embed because no one could ever say, like, well, we've never done this before, because we've never done anything. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so there was this sense of kind of, you know, a brave new world, making it up as you go along. And two black mayors it's had. What led you to go into journalism? journalism. It's by accident, really. So I studied French and Russian. I studied to be a translator and interpreter. My mum didn't go to university, and we've been raised to really think, you go to university to get a job, you know. If there'd been a degree in plumbing, my mum would have said, well, that would be better than history of art because, like, you can get a job. So my my eldest brother, who went on to run a travel channel in America and be a television executive, he studied mining geology. <laughs> no, you know, nothing to do with what he went on to do. So I studied French and Russian. And I was also very politically involved. I'd always been politically involved. My mum... She would never have used these words about herself, but she was a feminist, she was an anti-colonialist. And she passed away relatively young. She died age 44, so I was 19. I had been politically involved from quite a young age. Me and my mum had picketed the South African embassy together overnight. We had been on a C&D demonstration with her, anti-apartheid demonstration. I joined the Trotskyist movement when I was 15. I left when I was 16, so that was, you know, <laughs> that was a very special year. Was the Trotskyist movement big in Stevenage? <laughs> it, was about, it was about Gary's shape. It was about my size. It was... Uh, it you was, were the movement. Yeah, if it all kicked off, it was all going to come down to 15-year-old Gary Young. Smashing the system in yeah, Stevenage. Yeah, I know. And so when I got to university, 
two things happened. First, I got very politically involved and very politically engaged. I ran rent strikes and and I was elected as a student union sabbatical and I was very involved. I set up an anti-apartheid. I was very involved in a Labour club, all of that. And the other thing was I learned that I didn't really love translation, but what I did love was manipulating language, messing about with words, you know. Because in translation, I'd be like, what is the word for this? And then you have to think, well, is it indecipherable? Well, it's not quite indecipherable. It's kind of, it's a bit more like this. That's too high registered. I was really into that. And so that combination of being interested in words and being interested in politics had a possible outcome. The truth is I'd never thought of writing as a career because the idea that you could make money, that you could have a career writing seemed, you know, absurd to me or at least not something that would be possible in my life. And The Guardian, uh, I was just about to graduate and then I saw an advert in The Guardian for a bursary to study journalism at City. And it did have the words, and these things do make a difference. People from ethnic minorities are encouraged to apply. So I applied. I was interviewed by, among others, Alan Rusbridge, who's a a young features editor at the time. And I got this bursary, studied journalism. Now, reading your book is a really complete pleasure, I must say. And I think one of the reasons it's a pleasure is because a lot of it is quite surprising. And I just want to ask you about your first piece for The Guardian, because there you were. I think this is your the, f- the first piece you wrote, I think, was, or maybe the first feature, was about Nelson Mandela's presidential campaign. Mm. And this piece is so interesting because you, basically you say in this piece, Nelson Mandela is quite a boring speaker. <laughs> uh, now, you know, this is Nelson Mandela we're talking about. And I was so interested that you had the kind of confidence, and you, and you write in the book about how you wrote this piece, and it was obviously days really before the internet, but you then got like messages about how much people enjoyed the piece and, and so on, and it was a real sweat to write it, and you had advice from others. But it's a, it's just quite a degree of self-confidence that you can go and write that piece. Yeah, I mean, or ignorance, right? It could be stupidity. It could be that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Is it like a youthful swagger, though? Is that what we're seeing? I, no, I don't think so. No, I, I felt that kind of... Um, So I'm following him around, and I think somewhere in there, I feel like, well, you you have to write what you see, and you have to write, like, what's the point in you being here? If And having, I might not have written it at all, but having built up his arrival, you know, which was amazing, you know, you'd see the cavalcade coming from afar, kicking up dust in this kind of place miles away from anywhere because that's where apartheid just left people and people start singing and cheering and a lot of them have never seen his face apart from on a poster and the, the dust is getting closer and it's getting bigger and it's just wild and you know I I was I'd been involved in the anti-apartheid movement since I was like 15, 16 and like here I was in like stumbling into this thing and so you know I'm describing that because it's the most one of the most vivid things I experienced well, then you kind of got to say what happens next, right? And, like, you could say, oh, we blew everybody's socks off. Or <laughs> he didn't. So a couple of things it, it wasn't. I don't feel that it was arrogance because I didn't feel particularly arrogant. I felt constantly like I didn't know what I was doing. And it, it wasn't swagger. 
there has to be some level of confidence there, I guess. But I saw this also with Obama, where, and this is somewhat centralising, and it's not true for for everybody, but I was much calmer about Obama than most of my white colleagues. I was not like, oh my God, he's a bit, you know, he's the best thing. I was like, his agenda is somewhat better than Hillary's. Not much, about 85% of it is the same. He did oppose the Iraq war, which was a kind of big thing for me, but it's not the second coming and I'm not going to lose all sense of myself. And I did find... A lot of white journalists overreaching, some black journalists too, whereas it felt like a much more sort of sobering experience. But I wonder if there's something in this which is interesting also about you, which is the same thing that led you to say to our bosses in whatever it was, 1993, I'm not going to go and invite Jean-Marie Le Pen on, onto the world this week, which is obviously you were maybe your mum or your upbringing gave you a sort of sense of what was you know. I don't know, just sort of standing up for yourself, doing what was right. Being or true to yourself. Being true yeah. to yourself. Yeah, and I, maybe I would describe it as kind of a sense of self-authorship. From a fairly early age, I didn't really know many people like me or my family. So then you've got to kind of make it up as you go along, you know. And there is this way in which I had this kind of ironic relationship to every community that I was marginal in. So I didn't know that many black people. I wasn't like the other white working class kids. When I go to university and enter the middle class, and not many people who quite have my experience. So in all sorts of ways, you're kind of, you are forced to differently imagine yourself. And so the truth is, when I wrote that, I didn't know that I was being cheeky. I thought, well, this is what it's like, and I can't... Well, honest as well. We, yeah. we were being honest. What a version of honesty. Other people could have come away and said, oh, you got that completely wrong. But I remember, and I think I wrote it, that there's a guy next to me, an ANC guy, who's quite high up, and I say to him, is it all like this? And he, and he said, yeah, he's not Martin Luther King. <laughs> you, you write that in the piece. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's interesting is as a reader, I see this great writing across decades. Of course, as the person writing it, like any of us, you want to get better at your job and you want to progress and you want to hone your work. When you look at something from 20 years ago, how do you get past just seeing what you don't like about your own writing as a younger man? It's really hard. You think, oh, yeah, that's when I was doing that. Or that's when <laughs> that's when I'd read a bit too much Kapuscinski, do you know what I mean? Or that's when I thought... I might be C.L.R. James or like you just go through this, <laughs> you're a human being and you go through these stages. In the book, there are pieces, and I say this in the introduction, that I don't think they're brilliantly written, but they are in the, so particularly like the Trayvon Martin piece, which I get home, I've been at a party, the verdict on George Zimmerman is delivered. This is a party of kind of radical black educators. People start crying, the music goes off. I'm not due to write my column for another couple of weeks. And I just think, oh, this party's over, man. I've been looking forward to it as well. I just thought, this is over, I'm going home. And on the way home, I'm getting angry and angry. And I, I get home in Chicago and I think, it's like 10 or, you know, Papa's 10. I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something now. And England's in bed. So I don't even know who I'm sending it to. I'm just like... And I'm thinking, if I can get this up before England wake up, this can be part of the beginning of a conversation. And so I'm angry and I'm tired and I write this thing, which is like 500, 600 words. And then the, the story of this thing becomes quite funny because I write it, Australia is awake. I can't get hold of my editor in New York and anyway, it's late. England's asleep, Australia's awake. They say, send it to Australia, Australia put it up. When I wake up, all hell's broken loose because nobody knows what legal jurisdiction it lands in. So they've taken it down while they figure out if I'm libeling anyone, which I wasn't. And then, because it was raw and angry and people were raw and angry, <laughs> then this kind of online campaign that Michael Moore gets involved in. To get the piece back to up. To get again. the piece back up. And they're censoring Gary Young, which they absolutely weren't. They're censoring Gary Young. And it's, it's like this piece of Samizdat, you know, and then people who had it up on their screen copied it. And they say, I'm posting it. And then it finally does go back up. And then it's a kind of victory for Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's all very weird. And this all happened like before breakfast. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I was asleep for most of it. I look back on it and it's, it's, uh, it's passionate writing. It's not great writing, but it's of the moment. And one of the things that I try and do in the book is say, well, I was there for this. Do you know what I mean? Like the Obama one is written with, when, when he wins the election that night, is written with no sleep. You know, filed it kind of. You're quite enthusiastic, actually. I mean, you said earlier that you sort of were. That piece is quite. Yeah, well, I thought, like, um, I I think I have one little caveat in the piece where I say the questions about whether he can deliver and blah, 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 that's for another day. But it was such a crazy evening to be, or crazy night to be in America and to to see them walk out on the stage in Grand Park and to be like. 
And so it was, it, yeah, I was enthusiastic, yeah. but it was kind of, um, no, no, who could blame you? Much of the, of the moment. And then we see you like make sense or, or try and make sense of what his legacy will be towards the end of his presidency. I'm wondering if five, nearly six years on, if your thoughts on that have evolved. If anything, I've got a bit harsher about him, to be honest. Because you take his basically, he, he was a grown up. Yeah, he was a grown-up in the room. He was an adult in the room. And you have to look at, like, what preceded him and what followed him. So he follows George Bush, and he's preceded by Donald Trump. Given that that's the kind of spectrum of who might be president in America, then you've got to be grateful that this person was elected. But one of the things that I think is very important, and I try and tease out in other ways in the book, is just that distinction between symbols and substance, and that... While his election was symbolically incredibly important, and that should not be derided for a moment. And given who else was standing, I'm glad that he won. That substantially, well, you know, actually, Black Lives Matter emerged under him. The state of black America compared to white America, actually things got worse in lots of areas because of him. Uh, not because of him, but under him. And that I think it's your job if you're analysing him to kind of make those points. That it's, I remember one commentator said, fine, Gary, but you're such an Eeyore, you know? And I, I kind of, I know what he means. Like, can we not just be like really excited about this guy for a moment? And it's like, you can do what you want, but I feel that my job isn't necessary to indulge that. So people used to say to me, my son was born the weekend that Obama declared. And, uh, you know, I'm pushing around with a pram and there's all these posters, hope, change, and, and people saying, this would be great for your son. And I would say, why? Why? And I said, what do you mean, why? I mean, black person's going to become president. I'd say, so if Condoleezza Rice became president, would that be great for my son? They'd well, no, no, of course not. And I'd be like, so what do you mean? And, like, of course... You don't make many friends doing that, and it's irritating. But if we fast forward to Rishi Sunak being prime minister or Tony Sewell or whatever, then actually making that point about representation and the, that diversity, as Angela Davis said, can be the difference that brings no difference and the change that brings no change, that's actually quite an important point to make in the moment when it suits you not to make it. One of the things that's incredibly sobering as you read across the book is how much you write about the kind of the violent deaths of black people because it's such a feature of our societies. Yeah. You know, Stephen Lawrence, uh, George Floyd. I mean, I guess so. I think it's just important to sort of talk about and to re sort of reflect on. I mean, you know, you, 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 one of your early columns is about Stephen Lawrence and, mm. you know, McPherson and institutional racism. And one of your later columns is about George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unavoidable, I guess. And that even if you were to try to and avoid it, it would be like a hall of mirrors where it would just keep coming up against you. So some less known examples would be the kind of piece about Brandon Martel Moore or the piece about the boy who stabbed another boy to death. And that in both of those things, the sort of gun violence and knife crime, they weren't kind of things that I was... They were things that I was kind of impelled, if that's a word to yeah. write, that I yeah. kind of ended up 
kind of not having any choice but to kind of navigate them and with the gun violence that was the subject of my you know previous book about all the kids that got shot dead in one day I felt like I had to make sense of them and rationalize them and uh, or not rationalize their murders but just understand them and one of the things that really came to me as a result of covering particularly those kind of deaths where in some sense people have become inured to them was there's some shift in how we need to understand journalism that we kind of when I did my course at City people would say yeah there was an adage that we were told, you know, when a dog bites a man, that's not a story. When a man bites a dog, that's the story. And coming to think, well, you know, sometimes you have to ask, well, who owns these dogs? And why do those people keep getting bitten? And what can we do yeah. to stop? So sometimes the things that we just accept as being kind of banal facts of life should be news. And the people who make the news can make them news. So when George Floyd gets killed... There's not an increase in the number of black people being killed by cops. There is a new interest in yeah. a very old thing. It speaks to a failure of journalism in a way. How do you talk to students and young journalists about tackling that in the future then? I don't know that any individual can tackle it. There are a couple of things that I say particularly to black journalists which is young journalists, which, because when I came through, I was, I was kind of told, either don't write about race, you'll be pigeonholed, or only write about race, that's what you're here for. All too few people suggested, what are you interested in? Why don't you write about that? Because you'll write about that well, and you'll be passionate about it, and so on. So I always make that point. And then I say to them, like, People that you violently disagree with still have a rationale. And it behoves you, as a journalist, to try and understand what that rationale is. Not to indulge it, but just to try and understand where they're coming from. Not least because if you violently disagree with it, how are you going to argue with it if you don't even know what it is? And I can think of three areas where journalism really found in recent years. One was Trump. One was Brexit and one was Corbyn. In terms of just curiosity, I'm not asking you to like him, but you've never even been to a rally. You've written his supporters off, Trump, as just being racist or xenophobic. That's really interesting. You've written Corbyn supporters off as being Trotskyists and lunatics. I remember going to a series of Corbyn rallies for a piece I did, an interview I did with him, and being stunned by how ordinary his supporters were like not on Twitter which is not where people live but kind of you know I interviewed loads of people and I say you know what do you think of you know I think it's time that Just Labour got back to a bit more about what it was like you know I like Tony Blair but I think things are quite people are having quite a hard time it was stuff like that it wasn't kind of neoliberalism didn't come up once do you know what I mean I was quite disappointed (laughs) like it wasn't kind of critical race theory and that doesn't that's not justification that's not in any way a comment on whether you support Corbyn or not but for God's sake understand it before you critique him and uh, or try and understand him and the same is true for Trump sitting in at the top of a print shop with a local kind of Muncie, Indiana, right wing used to kind of congregate 
and asking them, you know, so, you know, what, what, what do you like about Trump? And they're like, well, we don't really like him, actually. We think he's boorish. We think he's rude. We think he's... But God, Hillary, God, you know, and, then, and you're like, oh, so you're actually seeing a lot of what other people are seeing, but then you're seeing these other things. And, um, and so there is this way in which former colleagues, I'm not a full-time journalist anymore, feel, well, I know, I know this. I know that what happens here. I know who these people are. And I think, well, you don't. So it's this idea that the story is not written in your head, but the template for the story is in your head and you're going to collect stuff to fill those boxes in the template. Yeah, and as opposed to going in with slightly more humility and thinking, what is this about? Where You know, where's this? Who are these people? What is this? Which could be taken for indulgence, but needn't be. You're not... These aren't... I'm not looking for friends when I go and interview Republicans. I'm looking for perspective. You know, you speak to someone who voted twice for Obama and is now thinking of voting for Trump. Well, there's something going on there. It's your job to find out what it is. And if you think about your own kids today and you think about your experience growing up in Stevenage in, I guess, 1980s. 70s. 70s, 80s. Yeah. How do you think about the life experiences, the challenges, the progress? First of all, it's a big difference. They grow up in London. So I live in London. So their experience is one of where multi-racial and multicultural is a, is a banal fact of life. They're not nodding at every black person they see in the street because they'd just be like a nodding dog. Uh, whereas that's what you do in Stevens. You give someone a nod. Um, secondly, their class difference. I'm sure. a professor now. Yeah. I had a well-paying job before. So their sense of what's possible for them, what's possible in life, would be different. I was 18 before I would describe myself as British. And I was born here. Both of my kids were born in America, and I don't think that they would choke on that term at all. I think there is a kind of ease of presence for them that wouldn't have been true for me. And some of that's about race, some of that's about class, and some of that's about the time. Black footballers playing for the England team, banal fact of life. Black people in Parliament, banal fact of life. People of colour as Prime Minister, banal fact. So there's a range of things that, when I was growing up, you wouldn't even have been able to imagine. I remember... The moment when I started to think, oh, I guess I am British, was I was in Sudan. I, I taught for a year. When I left school, I taught for a year in Sudan at a refugee school. And people would say, where are you from? And I would usually say Barbados, which I'd only been to once for like six weeks as a four-year-old. But Britain didn't feel quite right to me. But sooner or later, you had to admit that you were from Britain, even if you weren't British. And then they would say, no, you're not. You know, you're, you're an African man or American. And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Or was, when they said African, I'd be like, not in a way that you mean. And I was really hot on not being American, which is a bit sort of sad, really. But it was, you know, America was not my favourite place at the time. And then this guy came running over to me in 1987. And he said, it's true, it's true, it's true. Your compatriots have won. 
And it was 1987. It was the election of the Bernie Grant, Diana, Bernie Grant, Diana Abbott, Keith Paul, Paul Boateng and Keith Vance. Yeah. And there was a picture of them in the Sydney newspaper. So and the guy was like, it's true. Like, what you've been saying, which I have been ignoring, is is true. And that was the beginning of me thinking... I mean, I remember it really well. And it was the beginning of me thinking, I'm going to have to make my peace with this. I'm working with refugees that have no country. I have, like, more than one country. And I'm saying I'm from one I've never lived in. And I'm saying that I'm not from one that I... I'm, it's the only bloody one I know. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And that I'm going to have to find a way to make sense of this that doesn't just go into denial about the things I don't want to admit. Can, can I ask, we've referred to this a couple of times, you've stepped back from being a full-time Guardian journalist to becoming a professor of sociology at Manchester. What, what made you decide to do that? Age was one, you know, I was 50, and I thought, do I want to die here? Which is kind of, you know, just how my mind works. I thought, I'm, I'm not sure I do. Feeling that I wanted to spend more time maybe saying less things, focus a bit more. That there is, there is this regular hit that you get from journalism, which is a kind of slightly dopamine kind of driven, I think. You the weekly column, column yeah. You do your column every yeah. week or every two weeks yeah. and you're kind of, you, you know, there's a yeah. presence. You have this constant yeah. presence. And it's quite interesting now. People are like, Gary Young, where you haven't seen you forever? Like I've died. <laughs> You know, people say that to me actually. What do you do these days? Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah what are you up to? And um, but that you know, you have to have a thought every Thursday, not Wednesday, not Friday. Every Thursday. And what do you get to... most out of in terms of the professor? The the the, the it's early days, yeah. But the kind of the deep dive, the kind of um, I'm doing a lot of work on Black Europe at the moment. And just finding these stories that are known but not told, which are kind of footnotes in some other book. The beginning of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, I really did see the benefit. And I'd only been out of journalism for two months. But, of course, I got these calls from The Guardian and elsewhere, you know, do you want to write a piece? And, and I was like, no. I, I, I mean, I'm here in England, and it's mostly going on over there. And I don't know what I think about it yet. And then I had just a little bit of time. And I was already writing a piece of the New Statesman about COVID. And then they asked me to fold in some stuff about the demonstrations, which came in the middle of, you know, in between the piece being written. And, and at first I thought, no, because I'm not there. And then I thought, oh, no, there is a contribution I can make. And so I did. And then I wrote another piece for the New York Review of Books about how Europe misunderstands America. And that both of those were possible because I had the time to just step back a little bit from the immediate and think yeah. rather than can we have 900 words now on what you think about so-and-so, which is a perfectly, by the way, reasonable, viable thing to do. It's just that I'd done it for a long time and I didn't want to do it anymore. But but your your brain and to some extent your body must have got into a rhythm of having to have a thought every Thursday. Like where, where does that go? How do you stop yourself sort of being constantly on the scour for for things to bash out a column about? You get tired, I think. I mean, it's true. There is a there is a muscle that's flexed, and there is a sort of muscle uh, a muscle memory, 
And the way that that works now is just thinking, oh, my God, that is the story there. And then thinking, why don't you just wait and find out a little bit more about it before you write that story? Would you have the discipline to have something in the back pocket in case the cupboard was bare? You can always go to Plan B. Sometimes, but usually... You, you know what? Every time I found one, I just... Oh, thank God. I kind of felt like I got away with something. And almost immediately, there's a fear of the next one. <laughs> when I'd say, you know, I don't want to die here, there was a sense of, like, sooner or later, I'm going to get sick of this. And if it's going to be a rush, a, co- a race between other people getting sick of me and me getting sick of myself, why don't I call it? Quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Well, look, Gary Young... It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, the book is Dispatches from the Diaspora. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa-ho-ho, we're in the outro ho-ho. We are. Well, I said last week that following the tofu disaster... And by the way, just sort of in passing, I did say to Justine the other day, I said I was going to get back on the cooking thing after you just said my tofu was edible. She said, inedible, I said. <laughs> That's even worse. So it wasn't damning it with faint praise. Well, it was she's, destroying it with harsh criticism. I think she's criticism. forgotten that she said it was edible, but I think she considered it inedible. It's uh-huh. sort of the reveal, really. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I whipped up a Tuscan bean soup from... From Mexican bean soup, sorry, from sort of standing start. And I made. I loved hearing the politician in you then when you spotted that you'd made an inaccuracy, so you had to correct exactly. yourself just in case it was on the public record. Exactly. Exposed you. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, I just wanted to sort of reassure you that I'm back on the bike. Congratulations. Yeah, I, I did promise I'd be back on the bike. I'd like to thank our brilliant guest. It was such a stimulating conversation, Gary Young. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Rachel although, Content is our Barmer producer. I, I keep saying that. Yeah. That was take two. I don't know why, yeah. why that strange yeah. little habit has uh, crept in. Um, but Rachel is on leave this week. She did the groundwork, but yeah. uh, she, she has been ably yeah. super subbed yeah. by Joe Kenyon. No malarkey, from, as Joe Biden would say. Joe No Malarkey Kenyon. Yeah. From Goldfish London. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our I Don't Said Seed, composed the music, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Jeff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.